Hello, thank you all for, for coming out to this Burpin talk and lunch. Um, I'm David Weinberger. Um, we'll get to Dries in just a moment because you're here to hear and speak with uh, Dries Bottert. He will correct my pronunciation, <laughs> I hope, very first thing that he does, and I apologize. Um, but there are some things you should know before we get started, uh, which first thing is this is live. So anything that you say can be heard by the world. It is also being recorded. So everything you say can be heard by the world forever. So please say whatever you would like, but just, you know, it's the internet, so keep that in mind. Um, uh, so there, uh, Dries is going to give a, um, a, a talk, and then we'll open it up for discussion. We will end at um, 1.15. Please feel free to use whatever hashtags make you happy, but the pound Berkman is one good one. And at Dries, if, uh, when you're tweeting, also at Berkman Center at, uh, on Twitter. I, I, it's, it's Berkman Center. Okay. Um, uh, for your tweeting, for your tweeting pleasure. Um, so that's, I, here's the extent of my introduction. Almost all of it, in fact, is written here, except that Dries has, has left out that he is the founder and inventor of Drupal as well as its project leads. A much more modest, modest title on the screen. Uh, he's also co-founder and CTO of Acquia. And uh, with that, let me welcome, welcome Dries here. Thank you so much for coming. Hey, everybody. Is this working? Yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it? No. All right. I can hear it. Interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks for the introduction, David. Um, so my name is Dries. Um, I, oops, I started the uh, Drupal project um, you know, a long time ago, 15 years ago, out of my dorm room um, in Antwerp, uh, where I was living at the time. Nowadays, I live in, uh, in the Boston area, actually. So I moved from Belgium to, you know, the United States about five, six years ago. Um, and for the first seven years, I ran Drupal as a hobby project. I went to, um, went to work at a little startup in Belgium building... Um, real-time operating systems and, and Java virtual machine, uh, you know, machines. Uh, but at night and during the weekends, I would work on, on Drupal. It was my true passion, um, you know, trying to, to play with different things on the web. And at the time, very much, Drupal was an experimental platform for me to play with things like RSS and blogging, and, you know, uh, community features and, and things like that. Um, when I left the little startup that I worked on, I, I went on and uh, did a PhD in computer science. My PhD had nothing to do with Drupal or the web. It was all about um, uh, Java virtual machines. It uh, doesn't, doesn't really matter, but, but when I finished my PhD, I decided to turn my passion into my full-time job. And so I started a company called Acquia. Um, which is actually based here in, uh, in Boston. So I started it from Belgium in Boston. Um, we have since grown um, to over 750 people. Uh, people don't notice that we're one of the fastest growing private technology companies in the United States. So we've, we've been around for about seven years commercially and um, 
uh, you know, we work with large users of Drupal uh, specifically, so we build products and services around Drupal. But so this is me in my dorm when I started Drupal. Um, and a lot of things have obviously changed um, since these early days. And, and most recently, uh, Drupal turned um, you know, 15 years old. And we also released Drupal 8 on the same day. And uh, we celebrated that um, you know, with 240 parties all around the world, which is kind of cool. Um, and um, you know, today Drupal is used by roughly 3% of all the websites in the world, so millions of websites. We have a very large and active community of contributors. There are over 35,000 people contributing to Drupal today, um, you know, which, is, which is pretty exciting. But obviously, a lot has changed since the day I started Drupal and today. Um, and on this slide, you can read a few examples, but um, when I started Drupal, I felt like I could wrap my arms around everything that was going on the web. And today, obviously, that's almost impossible <laughs> um, to even know what's going on. But like Google was still a private company at the time. Um, I remember while I was working on Drupal, before um, I released the first version of Drupal, Google had just launched AdWords and had like 500 customers. And so obviously today, their advertising business alone is a you know $65 billion business. And so just to think about the impact of advertising and how that changed on the web, um, it's kind of a big deal. But half of the people had cell phones back in the day, um, and AT&T only had just launched text messaging a few months before. And so this idea of the mobile web just didn't exist. Um, you know, obviously, social media, Facebook, Twitter, they only you know, were born many years later. Um, open source, so Drupal is open source. Um, open source was still something that people were trying to understand. And companies like Microsoft and others, they would uh, put out these memos, you know, leaked or on purpose, I don't know, you know, sharing that they felt threatened by the open source movement. And so, very interesting time. Uh, today, obviously, mobile is a big deal. Social media is a big deal. Open source is extremely well accepted and continues to grow. And you know, Google is one of the largest technology companies in the world. So, and Drupal survived all of these you know changes in the market. And I think we survived them because we've always sort of thought ahead. You know, we've always been thinking, where do we need to go to stay relevant? And then we managed to navigate our community to be at the right time at the right place. And so we are 15 years old, but we continue to gain um, you know, momentum. Um, all right, I mentioned the birthday. And so if you go back in time and you think about how things were, and if you think about how things are today, um, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of small websites that were connected to Google. Um, you know, people would search them, but then over time, there's these bigger platforms that started to emerge. Um, you know, companies like Google, as I mentioned, LinkedIn, Facebook. And I feel that today they've grown so big that they're actually starting to squeeze a lot of these smaller sites or um, sort of out of the picture. And the way people consume the internet can literally be through these platforms. There's been research, which you may all be aware of, that 
basically say that a lot of people think Facebook is the internet. You know, if you ask people <laughs> what is Facebook, they'll say Facebook is the internet. Um, and so I think that that is a bit of a challenge personally. And so today I want to talk about the open web, some of the trends in the market, and I'd love to discuss um, how we can try and save the open web. Right? And so before we do that, I'd like to um, share a few um, you know, thoughts myself and, and maybe first try to define what do we mean with the open web and what do we mean with the closed web. Right? Because I think aligning on some sort of a definition is probably useful, uh, a useful start. So when we talk about the closed web, we typically refer to uh, these walled gardens. It's also how the media refers to them. It's companies like Facebook and Apple and Google that capture a lot of data. Um, but at the same time, I think what, what makes this interesting is that the walled gardens, even though they have a lot of data, they try to you know, attract everybody to their sites, they're also doing some good things. If you think about Google, if you think about Facebook, they've literally um, brought millions, you know, even billions of people online. And they provided a better experience for them, enabling them to connect with one another. In the process, there's lots of great stories of how these platforms have a really meaningful impact on even democracy, on human rights, and how they've been able to drive change in the world. So. This is where it gets difficult, right? Because they have a lot of data, there's real concerns around privacy and the likes at the same time. They're also really helping a lot of people. If you think about the fact that things like Google give people that have internet access pretty much instant access to critical information, it can be life-changing for a lot of these organizations, or people, I should say. Um, so I think what's scary about those is their scale. You know, Google and Facebook have over a billion users each. I think Facebook is 1.6 billion active users each month. Uh, Apple has over a billion iOS devices. And it's that scale combined with the fact that they um, are able to shape the news. Um, there's a study from Politico that says that Google could actually influence the results of the American election um, by just tweaking their algorithm and, and showing search results a little bit different. So they're literally able to shape the news. Facebook can show you everything, right? So they're deciding what, you know, what status updates are they going to show you. So they could build in a bias, either on purpose or by accident. I'm not saying they're all, you know, evil, but you know. Bias can be introduced. Um, they check an awful lot of data about all of all of us, and I'll show that in a second. Uh, I think that's potentially a reason for concern. And frankly, I don't think they'll stop until they know everything about us. And um, I'll talk about that a little bit as well. But if you think about what they know, I try to create a diagram for some of these big platforms. Uh, Amazon is the first one. Uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, Apple, um, and then try to visualize kind of what information they know about us, and it's pretty terrifying if you think about it, and Google probably knows the most of us, um, you know, because, I mean, I, I use Gmail, so they have all my email, um, Google Ads is on 
You know, like I don't know what their market share is for advertising, but probably 90% of the advertising uh, is using uh, Google Ads, and so they know every website that I go to. <laughs> and based on that, they can determine my interests. Um, you know, they try Google Plus, so they have, you know, all this information about my social network and the likes. And in fact, you should try a few searches. Like if you search just in google.com, um, for an Amazon order that you placed, it will actually show you on Google.com your Amazon order reformatted um, by Google. I don't know if you ever tried this. Um, the receipt of your Amazon purchase has to go into your Gmail, though. But like, they're able to parse these things and know what you buy. It's not just an email in your inbox. It's an actual thing for them um, that they know. And in my opinion, these platforms could evolve to the point that they uh, basically um, have all these things checked. Um, I think that's, if you think about a lot of the acquisitions they do and new features that they launch, almost always there is like this ability to check another box, uh, which I think is interesting. Amazon recently announced that they're starting a mail service, for example, um, you know, allows them to, to gather email. Um, and so I think this is a, a concern. But the, the, the challenge here is that they do this because they can actually build and deliver a better user experience. The fact that Google knows so much about you um, is actually not necessarily a bad thing. If you think about Google Now, how many people know Google Now? Some people? Well, so they basically push you relevant information at the right time, and they can do so because they know all these things about you. They know where you're going. Um, they know who your next meeting is, is with, and, and all of these things. So I think this is really important because I do believe that these walled gardens are winning because it's so easy. right? People use Facebook because it's very easy to stay in touch um, with your friends and family. For me, for example, I moved from Belgium to the US. For me to stay in touch with my friends and family before Facebook, I would have to give them a phone call and ask, hey mom, how are things? Or hey friends, how are things? And now I can just, you know, tap into this stream of status updates from all my friends and all my family in a way that's much easier and much more scalable. And so that's why these platforms are winning. Um, same thing with LinkedIn and, and, App, and uh, Apple and the likes. All right, so if we go back to a definition real quick, so there is this idea of the open web, and, and David will notice, but um, you know, back in the day, <laughs> there was something about creative freedom. Everybody had their own website, and you could express yourself. You could make that website purple or green with blue dots or you know, anything you wanted to do, right? You could create an experience. You could represent yourself with unlimited creative freedom. There's also something serendipitous about the web. And to some extent, there is still today, but I remember the evenings where I would get lost on the web and ended up reading you know, all these pages and then get lost again and ended up on this section of the web. And I feel that's gone a little bit, to be honest. Like we just scroll our Facebook feed and that's it. <laughs> um, we have much more control, not only over the experience and how we present ourselves, but also over our data, and, and to some extent over our privacy. And, and all of these things are sort of decentralized and, and 
there's open standards that emerge that try to connect some of these things and and uh, and Google and other search engines that try to kind of make sense of this decentralized chaos um, that was the web. Um, and so <clears throat> contrast that with the uh, closed web and, you know, people's Facebook profiles look pretty much identical. There's no, like, creative freedom in those things. Uh, algorithms, as I mentioned, decide what we see and what we don't see. Um, it's, you know, it's and getting worse and worse in some regards with Flipboards and Apple News and Facebook and LinkedIn, they all filter and curate what we see. And there is a thin line between creation and censorship, for example, and something to, to think about. Uh, privacy, it's all over the news all the time, but obviously um, there's questions around privacy and a lot of that information is siloed with a, a handful or maybe a dozen of, of large companies. And, it can be bad, and there's there's many examples of this in the media. Um, WeChat is um, it's basically the app that people use in China, and it's kind of a Facebook plus apps, if you will. And so there was a app in the WeChat app. Um, if you've never seen it, it may be a little hard to, to imagine, but um, the, the holding company behind WeChat then decided to buy another you know, ride-sharing company, if you will, and then instantly kicked out Uber from, you know, WeChat. And so these big platforms, uh, you know, can be a little terrifying in terms of how they uh, handle these kinds of uh, things. Twitter once had a completely open API where everybody could build their own Twitter clients. At some point they said, we're not going to allow it anymore because we want to monetize all of the clients that exist. So they closed down their open API in favor of making more money. Uh, Facebook with free basics trying to launch free internet um, to you know countries like India and then deciding to do that on their terms where they can use Facebook and a few other things but not completely free internet. So these, these platforms have a lot of power. So Google, as I mentioned, being able to bias you know what you search and the results. Uh, to the point that they can influence the result of elections. Um, so there's a lot of questions in my mind about this. Um, at the same time, and I'll bring these things together in a second, I want to talk about a few trends. And uh, for those people that have been you know, following my blog, I've, I've written about all of those, but one of the things I've been talking about for a while is this idea of the big reverse of the web. Um, if you want to know all the details, you can go to my blog, but the idea is, you know, I believe that we're in a sort of a transformational phase of the web, where we're kind of flipping the web on its head, um, where the way things used to work is people would go to multiple sites and get the information that they wanted. If you wanted to get the news, you would go to the New York Times, maybe then you would go to another site, and every morning people would wake up and go to like a list of all these sites to find the information that they wanted to, um, to find. In the future, and it's already happening, you know, information will come to you. Instead of you having to go to the, the source, information will increasingly come to you, not just information, but also services and products. And it's this idea of um, that content will find you, and it will find you at the right time, on the right device, 
Um, and so it's a big technology trend that uh, we're all trying to go after. Uh, but I think it's significant if, if you know, to, it's important to understand when we talk about the future of the weapon, it will become clear uh, in a second here. Uh, second trend is uh, data is eating the world. Um, again, all these companies capture that data and they use that data and they use it in combination increasingly more with machine learning, artificial intelligence and the likes to, again, you know, all these things combined basically to give you the right information or the right service at the right time on the right device. And they try to do that in a data-driven, you know, smart way. Um, so I have a couple of, you know, slides about this, um, you know, there's an example of sort of getting a notification. And they often call this um, mobile or contextual moments. So this idea if today you pull up your phone and you're at the airport, stranded like I was this weekend. <laughs> and you go to the airline website, it basically asks if you want to book a new ticket. I don't want to book a new ticket. I want to figure out when, you know, where, where my flight is and why I'm, you know, why it's canceled or why it's postponed. So I want to contextually relevant experiences or when I arrive at an airport and my luggage is lost, I don't want to book a new flight. I want to find my luggage. <laughs> and so building these kinds of smart experiences or contextual or mobile moments, I think, is, is where the future is at. Um, data will be behind that. They need to know where my luggage is. They need to integrate with a luggage service in this particular example. So it's all about building these uh, data data-driven experiences and artificial intelligence will be underpinning all of these things and again all of these things combined will lead to a better user experience but it will also um, raise a lot of questions and so I've long believed that this this is true that user experience always wins Now, people actually don't necessarily think hard about how their data is used or the ramifications of sharing all of their data, that they'll just do whatever is most convenient, right? Um, so that's important to keep in mind. Um, and so if you think about the future of the web, you know, will it be an open web or will it be a closed web? Um, and I don't necessarily have the answer. Um, I think it literally could go either way. Uh, but I think we need to think about how can we um, how can we build, you know, transparent algorithms, you know, that we understand how they work? How can we build data-driven algorithms because that's where the future is at, you know, it's to be data-driven, that help us discover information and that do not exclude serendipity, for example. Um, how can we take back control um, over our privacy and our data and how that's used and how can we break these silos the handful of large platforms and you know try to decentralize them in a way that um, that we can still offer the best user experience and it's really hard you think about how do we compete with Google when the way to compete is having all that data all that compute power and all these resources um, how do we do that in a, in a decentralized uh, way? Obviously, not exactly easy, right? Um, and so, I think there's a couple of things that we want. One, I think we need 
more transparency. We need to know what data is captured. We need to know how that data is used, but also how these algorithms work. Um, and so I've been talking about this idea, and I'm still not sure if it's the best idea, but it's this idea that we need an FDA for data and algorithms. Like if you have these large platforms like Google that have an impact on society, that can influence <coughs> outcomes of elections, as just one example, it would be good if somebody could actually audit <laughs> these algorithms to make sure there's no bias uh, built into them, <coughs> either on purpose or by accident. Um, so this is one of the things I'd love to get your input in um, once we're through the slides. Is this a, is this a way to, to do it, or is there a better way to get, um, you know, uh, to get these companies to, to do the right thing if they're not doing the right thing. If you think about the history of the FDA, um, you know, it was introduced many, many years ago, but it was the same kind of idea. People started to produce food, mass-produce food. People started to invent drugs. At some point, the government had to step in to make sure uh, that these things were well, you know, met certain quality standards and the like. So. And if we want to do this for data and algorithms, how would we do it? Because it's not exactly easy, right, to audit an algorithm. Maybe we need algorithms to audit the algorithms. Do we, like, it's not like somebody can go through all the lines of code at Google <laughs> to say that you know, things are working well. All right, so second thing I think we need is we need to protect our data, and specifically privacy and control. and, and Again, something I've been talking about for a while, not in a lot of de detail, is this idea of a personal information broker. It's, it's the idea where you unbundle Facebook and Google and try to store the information in one place that you control, but make it available through APIs to these platforms and be in charge of how much data you share. Um, how long you share it for, what they can use it for, and the like. And, and Facebook does actually do a little bit of that. If you use Facebook Connect to log into a website, you guys done that, it will tell you Facebook would, or this site would like to access this and this information from Facebook. And I think that's actually the right way to go. But we need to do it, um, I think, across all these platforms. Um, some organizations are experimenting with this. I don't think any of them have real traction, but I'd love to see this, this work. So one question could be, how do we make this work? Sorry, it was an animation. <laughs> um, all right, I think the last thing that we need is decentralization and a better user experience. And this one is also incredibly difficult. Like how can we, it's not, it's not good enough to be as easy to use as Google and Facebook. For this, for the open web to win, we actually need to be much easier to use than them. It's not about getting, you know, parity there. It's about like beating them at user experience, which is tremendous challenge. Um, I personally believe uh, this is where open source can come in, and open standards. I think we need to figure out open standards that allow us to build a layer of technology um, that enables different sites, different 
apps, different, whatever you call it, to communicate. Um, and actually make that very easy, easy to use. You know, like, and this is where it gets really tricky because, um, you know, like, how do you do, you know, how do you make it easy for people to leave a comment on all these different sites without them having to create an account, having to log in? And, like, can we build other layers in the technology stack that help, help facilitate that? Um, and so, you know, to wrap it up, um, these are just a couple of ideas of, of things we could try to do. Um, FDA idea, personal information broker, more standards in open source. Um, and while it looks almost impossible, in a way, I do think that open source projects like Drupal that have reach can have a, a meaningful impact at least. And I really believe that, you know, we have to try. We have to do something because um, today the web is used by billions of people. Tomorrow it's going to be used by even more people. I mean, think about how many people depend on this thing. And some of the changes that are happening, the things that I mentioned with machine learning, the things that I mentioned with data-driven experiences, the Internet of Things, all of these technologies coming together will accelerate the development of the web. And that will that won't be linear, it will be exponential acceleration of what's possible. And it will change everything, I think. It will change every business model, it will change every industry, it will change every country, and it will impact every life. Some of these changes that are ahead of us. And so, I honestly believe we have a huge responsibility to build the web that we want to build. You know, to build a web that's a great foundation for all these people for decades to come. And so, obviously, it's going to take a lot of effort and a, and a lot of help, but we need the smartest people, you know, to, to step in and help, I think. Uh, because otherwise, we'll end up with five players that define the web. So... With that, I'd like to say thank you and uh, start a discussion. <laughs> I think we have lots of time for questions. I think. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Elizabeth Guckenheimer, and my question is about you know what we actually have at the moment with the web and with all of the systems. And when you have a mismatch, as you know with your airport example, between the modeling that's been done and reality, and I'm sure everybody in this room has had an experience where somebody told them that there was, you know, that what they knew themselves, you know, your, your package has been delivered. Right. It's in the computer, it's been delivered. Um, that the, This can lead to a great deal of frustration and a lot of human energy chasing some bad information in the computer. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why your package was missed, but... <laughs> um, no, I mean, it could be a variety of different reasons, obviously. Uh, but I think it speaks to the, the importance, you know, as we build these 
systems, right, that deliver packages or that we become increasingly dependent on. I think one of the biggest challenges will be around uh, reliability, resiliencies. I mean, if a system goes down, all of a sudden, you know, things stop functioning. And so um, I think there's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of tools and processes that need to be built up to make all of these things um, work really well. And, and, you know, we see that with our customers, for example, as well. Like, a lot of them are moving to the cloud because that gives them that, you know, greater resiliency and consistency and gives them that foundational layer on which, on which they can build. So, you know, we're building layers and layers on top of each other that become stronger and stronger. So I think it's something that will overcome um, over time. <coughs> yeah, the dependence on systems is, is a little scary. Yeah. Hi, I think this was a very good talk, but I want to take issue with your concept of an FDA for algorithms. A while ago, someone came up with the concept of a cathedral versus the bazaar, and an FDA for algorithms sounds very much in the direction of a cathedral. Maybe what we really need is a consumer report for algorithms, or maybe a wiki algorithmica that will warn people about the consequences of algorithms. Uh, FDA sounds like something like China might think of in order to try to control what people see. And I think there's a tendency for more of a centralization of a lot of these things, partially for government control and security, and partially for monetization. And I think what we might need is more competition in an open source framework with some good information to help people choose. Right. I think it's a good uh, good feedback. Um, again, I don't have the answer here, to be honest. Um, if, if a system like that could work, it may be more scalable than an FDA-like approach. Um, people trust it as well. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll have to think a little, a little bit about that. You know, what comes to mind are questions like, if a system like that would work, why don't we use it? You know, for drugs, why don't we use it for um, you know, food? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I tend to believe in sort of uh, Darwinian approaches where we can try different things and hopefully the, the best solution will bubble to the top and survive. Um, so I'm all for trying multiple things and see what works best. Um, <coughs> Just trying to wrap my head around how we would even start <laughs> to do that, and and I think we would need, I think you need <clears throat> maybe some level of access to the data, um, you know, to do a good like a in-depth review. Um, yeah, something to think about. Okay, I'm, <clears throat> I'm gonna jump in with a question. Yeah. That's okay. So um, I. I love everything that you're saying, and I have deep fears about the closing of the web. Um, but <clears throat> there are um, efficiencies of size that enable Google to be able to search the way that it does. I mean, they have basically power plants. You know, right. It takes a lot of capital. Um, and there's a networking effect for something like Facebook. Right. Both of those seem, even if the data was externalized and they're dealing with open APIs that anybody could access, they would still have somewhat natural, I'm going to say, advantages that tend toward centralization. Right. Do you see any way around 
Um, the networking effect and the economy of scale issue? Um, well, it's kind of it's hard. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm, I don't have a crisp answer, but I have sort of a hopeful attitude. <laughs> um, if you think about the web and how it's evolved, it has kind of swung between closed and open over time. I was was born open when Tim Berners-Lee created the web. They had, you know, obviously it was meant to be an open system where all academics could collaborate and share. And then AOL came along and was a very closed web in many ways where you could browse the web through the lens of AOL. <laughs> and then we got out of that, like I feel. In the, in the early 2000s or late 90s, um, when, when Google was emerging, I felt the web was, it felt open to me. Um, so now it feels like it's closing again. So it's going back and forth. And I don't know exactly how we overcome economies of scale, but I, it usually takes sort of a fundamentally different approach to doing things. You know, like how we went from AOL to say the, the Google era, um, it was a <coughs> disruptive innovation, for lack of a better word, that st that caused the old model to, you know, to stop functioning. And so I don't know what that is, <laughs> but I'm hopeful that at some point we'll have a, some sort of breakthrough that will render that economy of scale maybe less useful. I don't know. Um, I wish I wish I had a better answer <laughs> to to that question. Yeah, this one there, and then. Yeah. Hey, um, so um, Jason Gerke, I'm a fellow here at the Berkman Center. Um, let me just follow up a little bit on the FDA. Uh, I we've had several speakers over the course of the year suggest something very much like a governmental agency uh, to do some oversight on things. And I'm becoming convinced that this is, uh, <laughs> becoming convinced over the course of, uh, of these talks that this might be something that is, is worth pursuing. The difficulty, one of the difficulties that I see arising from this, and if you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them, is the, the fact that um, you know, we have non-government actors in the form of Google and everything that have the ability to simply flee, right? Like, mm -hmm. if we instantiate an FDA for algorithms, they can run away to greener pastures. Right. Um, it's not entirely monetarily easy, and there's a lot of infrastructure and all of that, but, but there are many, many, many sorts of legal things they can do in order to hide themselves in you know, the Cayman Islands or whatever. Right. So, <laughs> um, are, are we talking about a UN you know, a like we have to kind of bump the scale. Is that the is that the way that this gets rectified, or um, is there something new that needs to happen? That's a good question, um, and I'm not a policy person, or a, unlike many of you, an expert in in law <laughs> and these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, something may need to happen. And I think that the problem exists to some extent today, right? I think. Um, you know, what happens when somebody in another country uses Facebook to do something illegal? Like, I don't know what the law says about these things, but I imagine that there is some things in place, and if there's no things in place, there should, probably should be something in place. Um, 
but obviously, the, to your point, the internet is a, is a global phenomenon, and traditional borders don't apply to a lot of these things. Everybody uses Google. Everybody uses Facebook. Um, so maybe I think it would be healthy if if if, um, if we did it at the local level because um, if one country does this, it will probably hopefully automatically become available to other people in other countries. <laughs> but it could be more effective to do it globally for sure. Um, Is there somebody who wants? Point. Since I just Rob, you like to I'd love to follow here? up on the FDA thing because yeah. I'm really puzzled by what the FDA would do. Um, like I understand banning certain food products that have been demonstrated to be unhealthy or poisonous. I understand putting a label on there. What would this do? Would it say that warning this news feed is tilted towards the right, or you're going to see more cat pictures? <laughs> what are we fighting here, and how would you do it? And I, I'm, I don't mean to be no, no, flip, no. but I truly don't understand. No, take it. Yeah. I mean, I can try to answer unless somebody wants to chime in as well. But I think, at a minimum, I think if these large platforms have a bias, I think it would be good to disclose it personally. Um, so they, they could ask them to disclose their biases if they have any. Um, that's probably all they could do, I imagine. Um, I mean, they, they can't mandate them to be neutral, <clears throat> I don't think. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think they, they could... You have to then define what a bias is and know right. how that bias hard. is. And you don't know if the platform knows that they have a bias. Right. Yeah. So it's complicated. It's very complicated. Um, I think there was a... It's been a while since I read this story, but there was... Um, there was a story, I think it's a few years old, where I'm actually not entirely sure if it's super relevant to your question or your point, but there was a story about uh, people would search, um, go, you know, use Google to search for images of um, criminals. Uh, do you know this story? And um, a lot of photos of black people would show up, and the, re and the reason was because Google learned from clickstream behavior and people clicking on things. And so Google, unfortunately, learned, um, actually because of the visitors and users of Google had a racist bias towards thinking that you know, black people tend to be, or more likely to be criminals or something. Google learned that, you know, to like, you know, show, people, show photos of black people. <laughs> when you search for criminals. And so that's not right, right? And so hopefully somebody, I mean, Google corrected this, and this was not something they did on purpose. It was a, an artifact, I guess, of, of you know, their algorithm. Um, but it would be good if somebody would um, make sure that that doesn't you know, stay there if these things are discovered. Then. Uh, I don't know. I just, I, I would imagine they would make sure these things are handled appropriately. I don't know. I, 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 so, to in full disclosure, I'm not totally convinced of the idea for an FDA either. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it could be very helpful, but I also have questions about it.
But I'd love to, if you have an alternative idea, um, I'd love to, to hear. In that, let's broaden that. Um, yeah. Is this relevant to the FDA or the international? Well, this is this is sort of tangentially related to this FDA discussion and how this might affect the sort of content that you're seeing. Um, going back to your idea of sort of, you know, I've heard this described in a bunch of ways. I keep hearing personal data store. You know, everything that you have, all this information about you, it's kept somewhere that you can keep it safe and you can decide what companies get access to what information about you. That's awesome. That's fantastic. There's a huge advance in many ways, but the sort of insidious after effect of this, I think, is, is going to be pretty dramatic in terms of the content that you get. If companies like Facebook and Google no longer have immense amounts of free or very cheap data about your preferences, your movements, your so on and so forth, if this is coming at some sort of price to them, either you're charging them for it or it's more of an issue of scarcity, that cost is going to be passed along to the people who are making the most of it, the advertisers and so forth. We've already seen, and you know, I, I come out of journalism, so maybe I'm a little bit biased as far as this is concerned, um, this rise of sponsored content, this rise of very, very sneakily tailored content for the needs of an advertiser or a service or a cause. Um, do you have any thoughts on how something like a personal data store might encourage that to just take off in this horrible, yeah. weird filter bubble kind of way? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good, it's a good, um, it's a very good observation. Thank you. Um, so I, I think, I think there is a risk that it disrupts these business models around advertising, obviously. Um, but I actually think it may also provide opportunity for them. And I'll, I'll give one example, whether it, whether it flies or not. Um, so one of the challenges today, um, you know, I sign up on a website, I have to, every single website, I have to create an account, uh, provide my address information, provide my credit card information, all of these things, right? And so then what happens is these stores start to send me physical mail, snail mail, um, or, you know, email. But they don't know when I move, as an example. And so their targeting just completely breaks when something changes in my personal life, whether it's I move to a physical location, their, their mail doesn't, doesn't get delivered anymore. So keep sending it. Um, or my preferences change. I all of a sudden have a new interest. They don't know about it until I go back to tell them. But one opportunity of this personal information broker is if I decide to move and I update my address in one location, it could potentially I'm just you know, brainstorming, I guess, it could potentially be sent to all of the parties that have given access to my data and that could make them more efficient. Or, if all of a sudden I become really interested in, I don't know, classic cars, or I don't know, I'm not interested in classic cars, but imagine I become interested in classic cars, it wouldn't be bad for all these organizations that I've told them, they can know my interests, to kind of pick up this new interest without me having to go back and somehow tell them uh, implicitly. And so, while I agree with your point that it's disruptive, I think there could be opportunities um, you know, to make them more effective as well. Um, so it could be a win-win. 
Okay. Is this on, on the same topic? Or is it's, it very similar? It is related to the data. You're, you're being very patient. You will get to you for sure. <laughs> so you mentioned the web sort of swinging from open to closed to open, and it, it made me think regarding data. Do you see, with the Apple FBI case, for instance, you see companies trying out to remove their own access from certain data so that they don't have to turn it over. Do you see there maybe swinging to a point where collecting all this data ends up costing more because regulators come in and put on sort of financial regulation-esque um, limitations that will raise the compliance costs so high that having that data is less valuable than not having it? Right. No, it's an interesting, I've never thought about it that way. Um, it's an interesting observation. Uh, not having the data could be cheaper, right? And could be could be safer in a way too, because it, if something happens, it doesn't maybe affect the brand. Um, so yeah, I think it's a very interesting point. I don't know how to balance it, but and, and I think it's also a brilliant marketing strategy. Obviously, <laughs> um, you know. It's, it's a way for Apple to, because they still collect a lot of data, uh, or they, they're capable of collecting a lot of data, although they do a pretty good job leaving the data on your phone, I think, um, or on your device. Uh, it's, it's definitely a way to differentiate themselves from other companies, too. So. Hi. Um, I think the financial auditing model, the requirements that are placed on publicly traded companies are another way to think about algorithms as opposed to the FDA. I mean, sort of transparency and disclosure on steroids. Um, but the, that was the question I was going to ask about, the, I mean, this is a wide-ranging, really interesting talk. Um, I want to sort of drill down on how, you know, open source, open web, open standards, might actually be able to compete right. um, with this future. And I mean, one of the points you made is, you know, that machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, you know, is going to be more and more important. Um, and I mean, it, it feels like it's about to become a commodity. Um, so I, I think you're exactly right there. Um, and the reality is that um, the stuff, the stacks are largely open source to begin with. So open source, you know, it may be necessary, but it isn't sufficient for competition. Um, I mean, the the um, you know the other aspect that's let um, you know machine learning take off is the availability of data. There's suddenly, I mean, what what's being implemented now was thought of in the 80s, but finally there's these huge corpuses of data, corpi of data, um, you know, that that can actually teach machines much more interesting things. Um, and some of that data is open, some of it isn't. But you know, the third thing um, that's happening. Is money. I mean, it's the, the you know corporations like you know Google, Apple, Facebook. I mean, are investing you know huge amounts of money in their you know industrial research labs on this stuff. You know, with only the tip of the iceberg being sort of public academic research. Um, and sort of the depressing question I have is, I mean, how does the open source, open web, um, open standards community begin to? You know, compete with that sort of focus of resources from the proprietary, you know, 
um, platform companies? Yeah, great question. And thanks for your patience. <laughs> um, again, I don't think there's an easy answer to this question, right? Um, I think we can win if we actually succeed in collaborating. And I have a few, a few answers to your question, but the first one is to look at Drupal as an example. Uh, we compete with uh, proprietary software produced by companies like Adobe, Microsoft, Oracle, and they're great competitors. Um, however, the innovation coming out of Drupal is way bigger than what's coming out of these organizations because we've managed to scale Drupal to the point where we have you know, millions of users, but we have 35,000 developers, contributors that are actively contributing to, to the, uh, you know, the betterment or the advancement of Drupal, the software. And our competitors may have, I don't know how many developers they have on their you know, CMS product, but let's say they have 200 or 300 or, I don't know, 50. They don't have 35,000, right? And so if we can organize ourselves, we actually get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> um, the challenge is in getting everybody organized, get, getting everybody aligned on the same vision and all of these things, but maybe advances in, in collaborative software on how you collaborate, you know, can, can help facilitate some of these things. You know, just, you know, when, when I started Drupal, we did everything by email, by emailing. We emailed patches around. It wasn't very scalable, right? And now, um, you know, with Skype and Google Hangouts and, you know, things like Slack and GitHub, all of these things didn't exist really at the time, and it has enabled us to scale how we work. Um, it is more efficient. Um, so maybe something like that could happen also to go and um, you know do these things, to compete with these big platforms. Um, that, that would be part one of my answer. Um, part two is, you know, maybe government should fund more, you know, universities <laughs> to, do, to do some of this fundamental you know, work, right? So it doesn't have to, doesn't necessarily have to be done in these um, um, commercial organizations, but it could be done more for the greater good. <laughs> um, so I think that would, that would be interesting too, and I'm sure you guys would like that. <laughs> um, I had a third point, but I'm spacing out here. <laughs> but it was. Um, yeah, I, I forgot what it was, but obviously a huge challenge. Just the, re the resources, not just human resources, compute power, data. Um, if you look at IBM, they're kind of going through a very large transformation as an organization, and they've been what they've been, the amount of resources they've been pouring into IBM Watson, for example, it's, I mean, it's mind-blowing to, to try and be first at this machine intelligence or cognitive technology. Um, and then they're spending billions buying data companies. They bought weather, the Weather Channel for, I don't know, it was over a billion dollars, I think, just to get that data <laughs> primarily, right? And so, 
Um, uh, it's obviously a huge challenge to compete if you don't have the data. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe policy, I mean, I don't know. I, again, I'm not a, a policy guy, but I, I don't think there's a silver bullet here. I think if the, the way to win and to change it is, um, you know, we have to do a lot of different things. I um, want to go back to the FDA uh, question uh, for a moment. Um, I think something that's been left out of the discussion is consumer literacy. Um, the things that we're talking about are pretty rarefied here, and it's awfully hard to make privacy concerns feel sexy to the consumer. So uh, for me, I think one pro for an FDA for data is that you know, I'm not, a, um, I'm not a, a biologist, and I don't have the expertise to know what's a good medical study. And in the same way, I'm also not a coder, and I don't have the expertise to know what a good algorithm is or what a biased algorithm is. So the agency presumably would be um, making that determination for me, right? But on the other hand, I think we can see from the FDA that um, compliance can be costly and favor big producers. You know, if you think about how uh, factory farming works, right, there are all of these sanitation requirements for slaughtering animals that are um, hard for the, uh, for the small producer to uh, live up to. So I think that's kind of a, that's an interesting tension in this request, right? Is it the sort of thing that would be intended to um, make the web more free and open, but kind of backfire and, uh, you know, make the big producers more powerful? Good point. Um, I haven't thought about that myself. <laughs> um, yeah, but what do you think? The, you know, it's like it's like a balancing act, and um, I don't know. We'd have to think about that for sure. Very good point. No. Hi, I'm Matt, and uh, so I've been uh, thinking about this FDA question, and since you've been getting some pushback on it, um, actually sort of want to put out the case that I think it could be something that businesses might want. I like this idea of thinking about scope, because mm -hmm. I think that there's a very big difference between what Bing does with its algorithm and what Google does with its algorithm as far as the scale of the effect. But also, a lot of times, uh, businesses are consumers of algorithms, and algorithms do different things. And so um, sometimes you're going to be making like medical decisions with an algorithm as opposed to newsfeed and what you read decisions. And there's already all sorts of existing law that applies to the things that these companies do. So if I was a for-profit company looking for algorithms, I almost would feel more comfortable if some kind of government agency provided a certification of some sort that the algorithm complies with existing laws in the fields, and then secondarily, uh, maybe doesn't have, I don't know, unintended effects, um, not just for consumer purposes, but also uh, for PR purposes and legal purposes. Maybe that's a defense. Um, so I was just wondering, um, would you view this as like something like there would be rules that apply to all players, or do you think that um, it would be something people opt into, and sort of um, what sorts of side effects do you think the agency would look at? That's a good question. Um, without having thought about it a whole lot, <laughs> obviously, yeah. I, I think it would depend. 
on the industry or maybe the application. Like, here's one example. Um, increasingly more people, or not, you know, increasingly more they use DNA samples to determine whether somebody's guilty or not guilty. And that's, that's algorithms. There is software involved that determine whether somebody goes to jail or doesn't go to jail. Interesting situation because you would like that algorithm to work really well. <laughs> so that there is no side effect of sending the wrong person to jail or having a person that should be in jail not go to jail. Right? So just one, so in that domain, I guess. Um, I, I think all the players should be subject to the same kind of um, scrutiny <laughs> um, and maybe be held to different standards. Um, another example would be self-driving cars. There's, this has also been in the news where the situation where a self-driving car needs to make a decision between killing its passengers or, <laughs> or, or killing, you know, Pedestrians, like if all of a sudden somebody, you know, runs over the street, and the self-driving car can either, you know, drive into a wall or drive over these, um, you know, people. That's a tough decision, <laughs> uh, obviously. Um, I don't know. If that's a good example of where we need clear regulation, and and because I mean. It, Obviously, you want every car to do the same thing because otherwise, if the Google car decides to run over the passengers, <laughs> if Volvo's self-driving car decides to, um, you know, kill its passengers, more people are going to buy the Google car. <laughs> I'm going to call on myself. So this is on the FDA yeah. question, which seems to be the dominant question here. So um, I can think of two reasons to use a government to do this, an FDA. One is to compel the search engines to contribute, uh, to make their algorithms available. And the second is then maybe to force them to behave one way or another once you've discovered. So I want to make a suggestion, which somebody else brought up, which is a consumer report sort of thing, uh, which has no government involved, um, which is... Um, so suppose there were uh, some uh, set of people who are trustworthy, reliable, they're academics, they're professionals, and it's an independent organization um, that performs tasks based upon the results of queries. So you don't have to look at the algorithms, which is going to be really hard to do anyway. Um, but you perform tests, you look at the results, and you're able to say, um, well, it looks like uh, for the following, here's, the evidence seems to show that Google disfavors Fox News, it, ha it covers more about Hillary Clinton than about Bernie Sanders, but Bing, and so forth. Or this one, more porn uh, results, fewer women results, or whatever. Just yeah. look at the results and give, tell us what they are. Um, so that would be transparency without requiring um, anybody to, any, any of the engines to, to agree to it. Would that, would that sort of thing accomplish your aim? Uh, or are you looking for the regulatory side of it, where you um, then compel the search engines to be more fair? No, I don't, I don't think they have to be more fair, necessarily. Um, no, it's, it's an interesting question. And I don't, actually don't have a really strong opinion either way, but um, at a minimum, I think it would be good to understand the bias. I, I think there's nothing wrong with curation, per se. <laughs> I mean, just like people know Fox News is, you know, 
reports differently than CNN, which reports differently than other uh, media companies. Um, so I think it could be fine for these kinds of things, for the reporting of news or finding information. I think some bias would be fine. Um, just gets really difficult when, you know, if, if you handle data as complex as Google does um, to actually understand their bias on a specific topic. Um, I mean, it's impossible, right? So that is a little bit of a concern. And so disclosing that bias could be helpful. And as you say, even the search engines don't always know their biases. They, they, yeah, right? they don't, exactly. They search for criminals. Yeah. But then for other things, I think, you know, the DNA testing, maybe the self-driving cars example, um, I don't think disclosing your bias is enough because, as I mentioned, if one self-driving car has one bias and another self-driving car has another bias, um, it's not and so they're all going to do the same thing, <laughs> which is not necessarily the best thing for society. And mm -hmm. so to me, that's the question. When it really impacts society, it may not be enough to disclose your bias. You may actually need to be held to certain standards. So. Hello. Thank you for your talk. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm also at the Berkman Center. Um, this is actually going back to the privacy question. And what I've noticed is that a lot of conversations around protecting privacy are around the immediate or, or very near term, as in our lifetimes. And I'm curious your thoughts about the longer term um, beyond our own lifetimes, um, especially things like personal messages and email or personal messages on Facebook, and whether this idea of having the broker of personal data could protect sort of our legacies, mm -hmm. as in will our great-grandchildren have access to our personal emails? Um, and is this a relevant question? Is there anything we can do now to, to prevent that? To prevent that, that data? To that type of access to our, our private right. data in the future. Yeah, it's a great question. Like because some of the data I'd love to see, you know, to keep available, right? Um, like I often wish that I had photos of my grand grandparents or something. And so we actually live in a in a time where our grand 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 grandchildren may be able to learn a lot about us, which I think is exciting. No. Um, and actually, I've thought about this. Like I would be happy to even pay a commercial service to say, you know, I have photos on my blog, for example. Like, can I pay somebody that will then promise me to keep these photos on my blog for the next 400 years? <laughs> kind of an interesting business model. Um, because I actually would love for my grand-grand-grandchildren, if I'm you know, lucky enough to have those, to be able to go and see, hey, look, um, here's some photos of Dries doing, I don't know, skiing. <laughs> um, and, and when there was so, still snow. Say that again? There was still snow. Right. <laughs> what about on the, on the other uh, flip side, for example, yes. things that you wouldn't want right. necessarily to time, you know, whether biographers will have access to things that were meant to stay private. Right, exactly. Definitely. Is there anything you think we can do now as we're thinking about the way the web works to sort of protect secrets, right. for example? Mm. I, yeah, the flip side is absolutely there. There's definitely things people don't want to keep around or are not useful to keep around, maybe. Um, but yeah, I don't know how we manage that, actually. 
So it's, it's an algorithm. Fascinating question. Yeah, great question. So I, I don't have a good answer. So we have time. We barely have time for one more question. So uh, a quick question and a quick answer. I'll be fast. Thank you. Could you tell me, meditate about power and how we can see power in our current times? And um, quoting a good author that I like in this moment says, uh, the power is it's easier to gain harder to use and easier to lose. And um, I like it, your points about decentralization and transparency. And I know that you used your own example of Drupal on the 35,000 collaborators that you have. For me, I see them like a, I don't know, army of micro power mm -hmm. against the big uh, actors that control power on the internet that you pointed them. Uh, so my question is, do you talk with your with your micro army of uh, powerful people about the importance of decentralization and transparency and how to encourage them for doing more in that path? Right. So it's a great question. As I mentioned, it's a great final question, actually, I think I do believe we have responsibility to try and build the web or the foundations of the future version of the web that kind of has the right values, has the right attributes. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, I tried to, in between running Drupal and running Aqua, I tried to provide some thought leadership around these things because I know a lot of the people in the Drupal community read it. And as you mentioned, there are individual contributors that can help either spread that message or actually try and do something about it, right? Um, so with, with the limited powers that I have, I try to uh, activate others to, to help uh, make a difference, which is also why I'm here. It's not every day I get to talk in front of uh, an amazing uh, group of people that are actually thinking about these questions more than, than I do, I imagine, especially at the, at the Berkman Center. So, um, you know, I'm excited to be part of the conversation and and I'm trying to contribute where I can, I guess, and enable others to contribute where they can. It's not every day we get to talk with uh, a leader and champion of the open web. So uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody. So that's to the staff that uh, always does an incredible and invisible job. So.